0: So, inquiry is open field, more interested in uh, exploring and understanding and responding to our experience, to our life, rather than to merely finding answers, as we explored this morning. And yet, there's a certain paradox in as much as inquiry is supported by teachings. There's a certain sense, on the one hand, we say, oh, open inquiry, just exploring life as it is. And yet, it turns out to be rather helpful for us in inquiring into the territory of consciousness, of self, other, world, heart, body, mind, inner and outer life. It seems to be helpful to have some descriptions of the kind of territory that we're exploring. And that territory tends to be explained in terms of answers. (laughs) Life is like this. So there's a certain fine line for us to tread, on the one hand, in making good use of a map. Life, consciousness, is complex, vast, intricate and subtle terrain to explore. So it's helpful to have a map. And yet, what we can also end up doing is getting a little fixated on the map so that we're busy trying to make the terrain of our life conform to what's on the map. So, Buddhism, for example, gives us a map with three very primary reference points. They're often called the three characteristics of existence. Mm-hmm. Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, Sabe Anatta. You, do, you don't need to be familiar with the Pali I'm going to translate <laughs> usual way of translating those and I'm not really going to use the usual terminology partly because I think the usual terminology is a little, can be a little heavy handed and partly because just by familiarity the usual territory becomes a bit of a an obvious point on the map so the first one anicha, usual translation, everything's impermanent or you can't trip over a Buddhist without hearing <laughs> that everything's impermanent. And you, we hear ourselves, we hear Buddhists repeating to each other how everything's impermanent, everything's impermanent. So this, is, this becomes a reference point. If we actually unpack the etymology, I think it's more helpful. Subbe, Sankara, all constructs are unstable all constructs are fundamentally unstable. Sabbe Sankara Dukkha usual translation uh, suffering if we unpick it a little try and find a little more refined translation I would say all constructs are fundamentally unsatisfying and Sabbe anata, um, all phenomena Are fundamentally not self-existent and if that's a little sounds a little clumsier than the others meaning not self-existence means you can't isolate anything on its own you can't separate everything that we see and know and feel is seen and known and felt within a whole matrix within the whole context within the whole um, um, matrix Uh, The whole gestalt of what is seen and known with it. I can't see I see you, I look at any one of you, and I tend to isolate you out and make you self-existent. Oh, there you are. I know you, I remember you, I remember your name. But it's pointing to the fact that we can't really know the you separate from the knowing itself, separate from the context around. Everything actually kind of interpenetrates and belongs to the whole at once. not fundamentally self existent so Buddhism in a way comes to us pre-packaged in these three insights or descriptions of reality or triangulation points on the map of consciousness it seems to me that the Buddha was trying to be rather careful in formulating things in that way I think it's interesting that they're framed actually not as um, affirming statements it is like this or it is like that but rather as negative statements unstable not stable not satisfying and not self-existent so he's actually not making a case for it's like this but just telling us what it's not like (coughs) however because we might have practiced meditation, because we might have listened to dharma teachings, because we might have found value in both of those things, practices and teachings, we tend, understandably, firstly just to refer to those things as if they're true, and then, secondly, we've maybe had experiences that really confirm something true. I've seen something about the changing nature of experience. I've seen something about the unsatisfying nature of experience. I've seen something about the fact that who I take myself to be isn't as fixed and as certain as I believed it was. And that increases our sense of faith or trust or love for or belief in these triangulation points. So, on the one hand, we, as I say, we find use and value and it's really helpful to have a map that describes the territory of our explorations to us. And yet, on the other hand, we have to lead with our experience as it is, not with experience as the way we've been told that it is, by teachings, nor even with experience as our own previous insights have suggested or revealed to us that it is. Now often we can have some kind of uh, deep experience, or profound experience, illuminating experience, valuable experience, and yet even though the experience itself is deep, valuable, illuminating, it becomes actually a an impediment to our further practice or inquiry because we've gotten a bit busy with it, that time when everything opened up and I'm trying to make it like that again or I'm saying no I'm not going to try and make it like that because I'm not supposed to be attached to my experiences I'm just going to inquire and if I really inquire then it'll be like that again. One doesn't generally have insights into the unstable, or changing, fleeting, fluid, impermanent nature of experience by just reminding oneself that things are impermanent. So these, these insights or triangulation points on the map are not for us to establish our view that that's how things are. They're not for us to shift from one view to another view. They're actually really, I would say, more inviting us to look at all the ways in which life doesn't appear to us like that. The idea that all constructs are fundamentally unstable is more, is in many ways, it's a, an instruction, a practice instruction for us to look at all the ways in which I relate to myself and to others and to the world as if. I am stable, you are stable, and it is stable, and that's where the kind of the or that's where there's, we get some purchase, we might say, on inquiry, or that's where our inquiry can really open up. So, rather, when I say you know the Buddhist stories telling each other impermanence, I think we can we can jump too quickly to teachings whether it's just through, through faith, or whether it's through intuition, or whether it's through some prior experience we've had ourselves, the idea isn't to agree with these things, or to try to persuade others of these things, or even to try and persuade ourselves of these things. And, for instance, just the, that that... Uh, reference point of Anicca, the unstable, fleeting nature of experience, has been an extraordinary source of insight and reflection in my own practice. But mostly through attending to ah, to where I notice I'm engaging with my experience as if it was stable. But I'm feeling in conflict with you because I'm expecting Things to, but hold on! It was like that yesterday, right? So rather than trying to impose a view, oh yes, but it's not always like that because things are changing. I'm invited to uh, to to be contactful with <coughs> my expectation of stability, my projection of stability, my need for stability, my uh, hope for stability, etc. So it's in that way, really, that our inquiry is led by, by our own process. We're, we're really following the thread of our own body, heart, mind, experience, moment by moment. And, um, and it so happens, usually, again and again, that in following that thread, it opens up. And it opens up in ways that concern, that um, confirm these kind of fundamental understandings of the sort of teachings of perennial wisdom, we might say, because because experience is like that, (coughs) rather than because it's a, a teaching that we have faith in or that we like the sound of that we're trying to impose on our experience. Important distinction. And so, the contactfulness, the, what's happening now, that we started to explore this morning, <coughs> so that we can actually follow the thread, so that we can see our experience as if under a microscope, which is often the way I describe it. It's not that we're looking at anything different these days, then we're just looking at our life. It's not that we're we're doing anything unusual if we go on retreat, for example. It can look, if we just look at the shallow details, it can look like we're doing something unusual. Or I'm meditating and I'm walking slowly, etc, etc. But actually, all we're doing is we're, we're putting the everyday stuff of our life. I mean, that's what we spend all our days doing, right? Sitting around, walking around, standing around, lying down every now and then. What else do you do in life? Really? Right, it's, uh, some variation on all those, and yet <coughs> we we're just we're just kind of simplifying and slowing down that activity so as to put it under the microscope. What happens if you put something under the microscope? You see it more clearly, right? it it, uh, it magnifies experience. And so, in order to put it under the, so one way of putting experience under the microscope, is something like a retreat, right, when one's re- simplifying all those activities, slowing all those activities down, etc., so that they stand out more clearly. And yet, the opportunity for doing that I- is different in everyday life. Like we were saying this morning, actually, often, we can slow down more than we think. Very often, especially, you know, city life kind of... Uh, there's a sort of collective vibe of hurrying. Right? You can tell, if you go to any big city, you can spot the people who are on holiday <laughs> in that city from the people who are working. The holidaymakers walk in a completely different way. And it's actually quite... Sometimes you see somebody in the midst... People walk very purposefully often, right? situations like they're leaning in so that they get to where they're going a little bit. This bit will get there a little bit before that bit. <laughs> There's a kind of purposefulness or <laughs> drivenness, even to the going. And then in the middle of that, you might see someone who's just wandering around. It's rather different. You don't necessarily get where you're going any slower. But the getting there or the moving or the going is ver- has a very different feel to it, right? By just that sort of uh, internal slowing so that's one way of putting our experience under the microscope a, s- a kind of a slowing and a simplifying which there's always scope for inwardly even if we might be m- moving quite quickly outwardly and even if the what we're doing outwardly has a certain complexity to it and. So we slow and we simplify in order to, to magnify our experience. In order, in other words, to get some space from the u- our usual enmesh- enmeshments. Is that might that be a word, enmeshments? You know what I mean, being enmeshed in. And there's, there's different ways to describe those enmeshments one way i like to describe them is in terms of desires views and self concerns we look at pretty much all our activity and right, we're usually busy with some kind of with one of those three fields of activity the field of desire wanting or not wanting wanting to get or wanting to get rid of the fabrication of views about things mm-hmm it's like this, it's, not like, it's like that, it should be like this, it should be like that. Or just some kind of reinforcement. just some kind of self-concern. It might be an intense self-concern that feels very anxious or very neurotic or very grandiose. Or it might be just a very low level of self-concern. Like sometimes <coughs> often in meditation people will report just junk. Right. It's just rubbish. Most of my mind content is just rubbish. <laughs> I came on, I started meditating because I wanted to do some sort of profound experience, and all I get is rubbish. <laughs> just half-remembered bits of the rubbish that happened yesterday, half-anticipated bits of the rubbish that I think might happen tomorrow. And what that is, is just a kind of low-level self-reinforcing of a familiar sense of self. Oh, what am I doing? Where am I going? Who am I meeting? How am I doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, the, the common feature of it is the I the thought. Buddha calls it ahankara. I making, what means I making activity. It's a rather interesting construction. Just the stuff that we're just constantly remaking the familiar sense of self in a way that we find annoying and frustrating when we actually pay attention to it. But actually, in a way that we generally find quite comforting, because when it's not there, it can be rather disorientating, at least initially. You say they get in the way of what? You say they get in the way. I, I said those are the, th- the things that we're usually enmeshed in, right, that prevent us from putting experience under the microscope. Is that clear? Maybe it will become clearer as I as I go on. Another way of, of describing how we usually get immeshed and it's not just that these enmeshment being enmeshed in these ways are just <coughs> habitual activities. They're actually they're ways that are shaping and I would say distorting the way that we understand ourselves, or we understand, understand what this is, the way we understand what others are, the way we understand what life is. So I point to these now because in this ongoing thread of what's happening right now, what's happening right now, usually even if we recognise that that's a really uh, valid or important question to ask, like we said this morning, what's happening right now? we start to recognise that we're usually, at least initially, asking that question through the veil of the ways we're enmeshed in habitual activity. So the three that I'd like to speak about are time, space and consciousness. It's hard for us to really find out what's happening right now. When we're asking that question through veils, of particular ways of perceiving time, and space, and consciousness. So, we'll we'll look at these things in more detail during the during the evenings. I don't uh, pretend to be able to just tick off time and space and consciousness <laughs> in, the, in the next twenty minutes, but well, let's see. <laughs> So we're enmeshed in what we could call the three fields of time past, present, and future. I'm sorry, I don't understand immeshed. Enmeshed, uh, enmeshed caught, caught in. Like a mesh is like a filet uh, net. You know? So the way you're kind of caught in a net, it it's just tangled. tangled up in. Yes. You don't know entangled? Uh, <laughs> Impliqué. Yeah. I was watching the Doctor Who last night.
1: Did any of you see the new series
0: of Doctor Who? No. No Doctor Who fans. <laughs> 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 he gave a fabulous uh, description of, ty- of, the, of the emptiness of time. Anyway, you had to be. <laughs> I was expecting at least two or three. Yeah, yeah, but no. Well, I was hoping somebody else would remind me what it was. I don't re- retain it very well, but it was something to do with. It was pointing to the way time, exi- doesn't exist. We have the sense of moving through time, moving through time. But he says, oh, but actually, you're always just here. You're always here. He says, you look at look at uh, movies. Movies appear like people are moving. Right. But there is no movement in a movie. It's a series of still frames. You look at any frame, you're just, it's just, this is what's in the frame. But when you run all those frames together, when you run through the sense of the three fields of time, past and present and future, you have a sense of moving through time. I think the script writers did a better job with that <laughs> than I just did. But uh, So how do, how are we caught Right, time seems like such a self-evident truth to us. There is a past, there is a future, and there's a present. We know what we mean when we say past, present, future, and we've got relationships with all three that seem to justify their existence. Right. I can tell you all about the past. I, I I sort of get that I can't tell you anything about, about the future, but hold on, I can give it a good try. Right, <laughs> I can generate all kinds of ideas about. And I can, I can commentate ad nauseum on the present. And that remembering, anticipating, and commentating, right, remembering the past, anticipating the future, and narrating the present, is the enmeshment, is the implication, is the, the way in which that sense of m- me passing through time seems so real. we do that in different ways and we have different styles you might recognize your particular style some of us get more caught up in the past and it might be... the habit might be to go more negatively charged or positively charged so what does it look like going to the past negatively charged? Oh, regret Oh, it was like this Oh, I shouldn't have done that Oh, if only I did, you know? and that's the uh, way a lot of us get enmeshed. we I mean, looking at our experience through a lot of regret of what I could have, should have, etc. Done differently. Others of us go to the, the past, but pleasant, positively charged, or pleasantly flavoured, Right, called nostalgia. Oh, it was so... Oh. And the more we go to that, that colours then our sense of what's, what's happening right now because we're kind of unconsciously contrasting, in this case unfavourably contrasting, to those halcyon days (coughs) when things were better, in some way. We see that just in a little personal intimate sense, some of the tendency to romanticise, basically, our past moments, our past romances, our past whatever it is. People do it on retreat. right? That's why people come back on retreat again. It's fantastic, because they, they forget that most of it was like painful and dull and frustrating and hard work. Right. And then remember, says, oh, retreat, so still and so peaceful and so many insights. And then they come back again. And then they come and see me halfway through and say, oh, I forgot it was like this. <laughs> so some of us, that's our style, is to get very enmeshed in the past, positively or negatively charged. Some of us, it's much more our style. I mean, we all do all of these, right? But we tend to have a stronger style, personality style. Some of us go more to the future, either negatively charged, anxiety, fear. Oh, what if this happens? Oh, I do uh, that, I'm sure it's going to be like that. Some of us more pleasantly charged, called fantasy or hope. Oh, I can't wait until. Oh, yeah. That's kind of leaning ahead of this moment. And we get to here and we've been waiting for this, or whenever that weekend comes, when that weekend comes. And now we're here, but we're already, you know, caught up with our dinner plans this evening and who we're meeting, etc. And so the, the way the fantasy and worry is kind of pulling us out of ourselves. Pulling us out of what's happening right now. And then others of us. Do we do that? Yeah. Positively and negatively charged. Anxiety, fear, or hope, worry. And then, some of us more get caught in, and one often hears in sort of spiritual teachings, ideas about letting go of the past and the future. But what about the present? The present can be just as problematic as the past and the future. And we can have the same kind of relationship with the, with the present, right? And that tendency to narrate, commentate, analyse what's happening. And often more, more neutrally flavoured, right? And just a description of, and we find that when we come to meditation. And sometimes we're just so busy telling ourselves what's happening, and the instruction is to, uh, to be with the breath. Oh, yes, the breath. I know about the breath. Breath's coming in. Okay, breath's going out. That was quite a deep one. Okay. And it's like a sports commentator, you know. And, and now the breath's coming in, and it's the in-breath. that's coming in the <laughs> a horse race or something. And we find ourselves, we're, t- we're telling ourselves the story of what's happening, right? Some of you obviously do that a lot. <laughs> we're so busy telling ourselves the story of what's happening that we, c- we can't see, we don't get to see our experience clearly because we're so busy with the interpretation of it, the analysis of it, the narration of it. And we can find ourselves just busy narrating our own lives, which is very different than meeting, exploring, <coughs> responding to our own lives. So embodied presence, often in sort of spiritual shorthand called being here and now, and the attention to body Meditation using breath and sensations are a way to, not just to, in a kind of spiritually cliched way, to let go of past and future. Right? They're actually a way to, to come back from being immeshed in regret and nostalgia and fear and hope and narration and commentary. And it's only as we get a little space from that that we really able to start to actually find some depth and dimensionality to this question. What's happening right now? So embodied presence, and as we're we're talking about it, please just to maintain that sense so that one's listening to the teachings in a way that's grounded, present, receptive, contactful. Embodied presence is the The way out in some way from the way we get implicated in time, and secondly, the way we get implicated in space and there's different ways we could explore that just in basically in terms of the you know, the way we perceive distance and there's nothing wrong with the perception of distance is very important perception right imagine if you couldn't perceive distance. <laughs> You'd, be, you'd get run over by a bus before you got to the station. And yet, the implication, the belief in that, so as to actually that we end up reinforcing a sense of it, the most uh, influential sense of space or distance, the sense of difference between self and world, the sense of inner and outer, the sense of I'm over here and life's out there. And therefore, I experience myself as being, in some way, apart from life. Separate from life. And therefore, a lot of our experience is motivated, if we look carefully, by an attempt to close that gap. To bridge that space, to resolve that distance. You can see that with food, often. And I don't mean just the basic maintaining of uh, the, the organism but the food that we, right, the food that we're trying to actually take the world in, in some way, and consume it so as to make it part of us, or so as to make ourselves part of the world. Sex, you know, any any of the the strong biological drives, if you really look at what's motivating, often there's that attempt, the attempt to dissolve the distance between self and world through sexual intimacy through food through, uh, through the consumption of pleasure in any kind of way as well as through various kind of uh, uh, I'll leave those other ones aside for now actually <coughs> so embodied presence is a way, again, to, to sort of, we could say, to come out from, or to get underneath, or to call into question that usual relationship. And again, it's so obvious, I mean, visual, our visual sense, surely, we say, seems to confirm that I'm here and world is out there because I can see you all, you're all out clearly over there. And yet, where is the seeing of you happening? It's happening here, here in awareness. We really, if we just contemplate, where is awareness? Is awareness out there, or in here? Is seeing out there, or is seeing in here? We find that it doesn't make sense, actually, to locate it in either of those places. But it can't just be an intellectual inquiry. Embodied presence is that way we're able to actually find out what's happening here in the seeing, feeling, knowing, exploring of it <coughs> and so if those are our, the two kind of axes of our usual reference time and space then the third is consciousness just the the reinforcing loop of our own kind of narcissistic reinforcement, and if you're psychologists, you know, if a narcissistic, I, I'm not speaking about narcissism as a a kind of you know Trump-esque uh, kind of extreme <coughs> disorder, <laughs> <laughs> but rather as Uh, as just the fundamentally narcissistic orientation of being a a normally more or less well-adjusted psychological human adult. The the tendency to be nevertheless caught up with our sense of reinforcing our own reflection. That's that low-level just talking to ourselves about ourselves that we do all the time. And so the the sense that consciousness is me, or that I am what is conscious, even though, as you may be familiar with anyway from teachings and practices, and as we'll definitely explore uh, kind of quite consistently as we go on through the days, even though we, it's very hard, actu- or actually impossible it turns out, to either define or to really have any kind of experiential sense of what that I is that we're speaking about. What do we mean when we say I am what's conscious? I am conscious. So embodied presence turns out to be powerful. And um, having a kind of limitless dimensionality. We start off with the sense of oh yes, I can feel. I can feel my body. That's a great start, right? A lot of people actually can't. I mean, just that instruction. Okay, well feel your, feel your body. What's happening in your body? Nothing. Very quickly, nothing. What do you ask? You know, nothing. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, what kind of nothing? What can you feel there? Nothing! Wow. Well, what's happening in your shoulders? Nothing! Wow! It's a very common experience. I'm sure maybe some of you came to practice with, without any sense of actually of this being an embodied practice. It's quite common for people to, to practice meditation for some years. For some embarrassing amount of years, <laughs> right, before actually getting that this is an embodied practice. And we have some idea of meditation as a kind of mental discipline, as mind training, we call it mindfulness. And it's sort of as if it's happening off in some <coughs> heady realm or abstract realm. But life it happens here. And certainly, experientially, awakening is, um, is a kind of a, a very, it's a very visceral thing. It's characterised by feeling, in a sensory sense, more free. Feeling more fluid. Feeling more responsiveness. Feeling more loving feeling more capacity to be here for what arises, to meet what arises, to explore what arises, to respond to what arises. So as we cultivate embodied presence, as we ask this most ordinary and yet you know, most uh, onward leading of questions, what's happening right now? we're pointing ourselves in a direction that can start to really to free us up from <coughs> desires, views, and self-concerns that otherwise are just filling up our kind of mind space all the time. And we start to actually f- uh, point in a direction that can s- fundamentally transform our understanding of time and of space. And of consciousness not in such a way that we kind of melt into some kind of psychedelic primordial soup where we're unable to distinguish time and space and consciousness anymore I think that's important to say especially for those of you who may have a history with psychedelics right, it's sometimes a source of confusion or fear that if I meditate too much <laughs> I'll you know time and space will melt in some kind of Dali-esque kind of uh, soup but ra- so not that we lose the capacity but that we lose the dependency on those familiar reference points so all of that is really a, um, a c- certain pointing to and opening up of familiar reference points and each dukkha stable unstable experience Unsatisfying experience. Unself-existent phenomena. <coughs> Opening up these reference, familiar reference points through which we meet ourselves and life, time, space, consciousness. So as to attend with as much care and interest and sensitivity as possible to just what it is to be here. so that that question what's happening right now can start to be felt or can continue to be felt or can develop in being felt with as much as possible of the depth and dimension that it actually has there is no limit to what we can perceive in terms of What's happening right now? So we could just do the same exercise we did this morning. Right now, I'm aware, and yet leading in such a way as to undercut some of our habitual belief in time, space, consciousness. We could just do the repeating of question of what's happening right now. And that's an inquiry that I would really encourage you to use in different ways. You You might use it uh, in in a formal way, as a repeating question. You might use it in journaling form. What's happening right now? When you get a few minutes, when you sit down in a cafe, right, before you get your phone out, just mm-hmm. make a moment, what's happening right now? It's like just to get a read on body, heart, mind, world, in this moment. I don't think there's, there's any moment or any situation in life that can't benefit from that question. What's happening right now? And yet, I wonder what kind of response you might have, even to that <coughs> encouragement, right? Oh, every time it sounds easy, sounds good, maybe. Every time you go to the cafe, you sit down before you get the phone out. So, what's happening right now? <coughs> and yet, we can probably also recognise how strong the compulsions are to just kind of. Um, Pour ourselves into desires and views and self-concern, to pour ourselves into time and space and consciousness, to pour ourselves into what I was doing, what I will do, what I am doing, to pour ourselves into (coughs) nostalgia and regret and uh, hope and fear and commentary and narration. So On the one hand, here we are, there's a certain sincerity. I want to explore. I want to be present. I want to inquire. I want to meet life more fluidly and freely. I want to be wise and compassionate. I want to be Buddha. That's why we're all here. On the other hand, I want to keep reinforcing time and reinforcing space and reinforcing consciousness and reinforcing self concern and reinforcing desires and etc. Re- etc. Et that's also true, and there's a certain friction between those two, a certain kind of incompatibility towards those two. So that's the inquiry that I'd like us to uh, look at a little bit this afternoon. That incompatibility. What is it, in other words, that gets in the way? of the the sincerity of the wish to be present, the recognition of the goodness and the beauty and the value of being present. Whether that shows up, as some of you referred to this morning, in some kind of resistance to formal meditation practice, or whether it shows up in the moment in the cafe where you sit down and you remember that Martin suggested just say, what's happening right now? And you're like, yeah, yeah, no, but not right now. So, I gave some clues, right, as to some of the ways we lift out of our experience. I called those clues time and space and consciousness. We spoke about how we go to regret and nostalgia, fear and hope, etc, etc. So, uh, the question for the inquiry is that, how do you disconnect? How do you um, kind of lift out from embodied presence? What's your habit style? What are your favorite methods of self-forgetting? And we'll do the inquiry in the form of a repeating question. And so there'll be two parts to it. The first part, the question is, tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence. Tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence. tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence and it may be that you start by referencing some th- the things you may already know or the things that kind of light up for you a little bit when I talk about those habits in relation to time and space etc but don't just tell the story of what you already know about yourself Right, the, the point of inquiry is that we're finding out in real time. So let yourself be as immediate as possible. Let the inquiry itself, even though you're exploring what takes you away from embodied presence, let the inquiry be one that's held in contactfulness, embodied presence. And you might find that even as you're taking in the question, you can see the habits of the things that take you away playing them out, themselves out right there. Tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence. Oh, well, I notice, you know, it might be that I'm trying to find the, an answer that answers your question, and just that <coughs> trying to find an answer instead of just actually being present to receive the question and see what comes as a response, that's something I do habitually. It's like I'm trying to rehearse my answers or trying to rehearse my participation in life rather than being here actually meeting it right, so you let let the responses be as immediate as possible in other words really just take the question in and see what comes right? there's no wrong experience there's no mm. wrong answer to the question you're not being held to your answers right? so you try try them out see what comes sometimes because the re- question is being repeated for ten minutes so sometimes, you might find that you're getting frustrated with the question. Tell me something that uh, takes you away from embodied cre- presence. Oh, I just can't hear this question anymore! Thank you. Tell me a way that you get, it takes you away from embodied presence. Ah, and, oh, and then if if some moment of frustration, for example, has come up, see, how's it? what happens when you express that. Oh, it's interesting, actually, because when I say that, you know, you might see something about uh, the uh, the way you overlay unpleasant experience with a sense of frustration that takes you away. So it's like you're, you're, you're meeting yourself in inquiry. One of my friends likes to say, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Right? So you, you're finding out by just putting yourself under the microscope of the question. The question is the microscope that's allowing you to find out about your functioning. Is that clear? Yeah. So, partner A will ask partner B, just repeatedly for 10 minutes, tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence. And then when the person's finished, the response might be long or short, and just say, thank you. Tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence. And you just ask the question, like, as if for the first time in a rather neutral way. And you're asking the question really as, just as an offering to the person. You don't ask any follow-up questions. There's nothing else that you do as the questioner other than just offer them the question for 10 minutes. And then you switch around and do it the other way. And then there's a second question. The second question is, what is right about disconnecting? What's right about disconnecting? So, if you've been listening carefully, you might think, "Hey, there's nothing right about disconnecting. right? I'm supposed to be present, embodied, contactful, etc." So we know that. But th- what the idea of this secondary question is to access that part of yourself that is invested in disconnecting, in in being d- lost in your own little ego dramas. So you're listening to that part in order to find out its justifications in order to find out w- how and why you're compelled in various ways and it it doesn't that sense of disconnect disconnecting from embodied presence it's not just about a kind of the obvious forms of disconnection so what's right about dis- uh, Oh no, I'll scratch that bit as well. The point I wanted to make actually fits a little more with the first question that it's not just about obvious forms. So tell me something that takes you away from embodied presence. Oh, uh, watching TV, for example. That might be true, right? But the TV watching in itself doesn't take you away from embodied presence, right? It's perfectly possible to be contactful. And while watching TV, I can tell because I watched Doctor Who last night. (laughs) (laughs) So if it's if it's TV though, if TV is the 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 answer, because you (coughs) know there's something that you're actually you're really you're kind of giving yourself away in watching TV. Let your inquiry go there. If it's if TV is a way I disconnect from embodied presence, it's like so. How come? Let yourself feel into and find out what are you hoping for in doing that. What does it do for you? What does it give you? <coughs> so, yeah, what's right about disconnecting? And again, Im- important then just to really let the, the question in and be willing to, to follow, to, to kind of, uh, to really f- listen to that part of you that's, that doesn't want to show up. That doesn't want to be present, that doesn't want to explore, that doesn't want to be available and contactful with experience. And it might be uh, interesting, surprising to see what you might find. And that second question, you would also do in the same way. So the person who asked first then asks this one for 10 minutes and then you swap around again. So you'll both do the. You'll first question, 10 minutes and 10 minutes, and then you both go on to do the second question, 10 minutes and 10 minutes. Is the form completely clear? Yep. Okay. Can I just check something out? You know the what's right question? Yeah. You're not using right, but then, of like right, right speech or right living in... I'm meaning what, what's right in, in terms of, you know, of yeah, what, what makes it seem like the, the, the attractive thing or the yeah. good thing or the, ne- the needful thing to do, what what's compelling do. about yeah, compelling. it, it would be another way, yeah. exactly, what's compelling about, but don't say it as compelling, just no, what's right, right. Side, just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm i not sure if we divide up into being an even or an odd number of people, but if we if you find, if there's one person just left over, you just can make a three, and one can ask the other, the other can ask the other, the other. So you'll each get a, an, an asking time and a responding time, and you would just do it for seven minutes each, each question, and that way you'll be on the ta- same time scale as everybody else. But there need only be, if there, we are an odd number, there need only be three there need only be one group of three and um you know maybe you're sitting in broadly similar places that you sat this morning maybe some of you have moved but in terms of doing inquiries with people um it's you know it's just it's fine to just find somebody to work with and that will often then be different from one inquiry to the next from one session to the next so the whole thing will take 40 minutes right plus no doubt a little bit of time for just faffing about so uh, let's be back here together to so do the inquiry come back again straight away so by 25 2 we can be back here in our seats and have some time together before we end the day any questions no so just you can uh, just find somebody else to work with. It's <laughs>